Well, hey, good morning. How are we feeling this morning? Good? That is the weirdest question to ask from a stage. It's like, what do you say back? Like, you can't really respond, but I'm glad that you're here. Glad you're with us. Hope you had an awesome spring break. If that was you and you just got back or or you're still planning like your next spring break for next year, I'm just thankful that you're with us this morning. My name is John. If we haven't met, I'm the campus pastor here at the Center Church, and I'm so excited for what God wants to share through us today and in this conversation. Uh, I don't know how long you've been a follower of Jesus. Maybe you're in the room and say, I don't know if I'm quite there yet. But wherever you're at on your faith journey, you've probably wrestled with some big questions. How many of you would say there's some defining questions in your spiritual journey? Just by a quick show of hands, like questions you wrestled with? Yeah. So there's some big questions that, that I've wrestled with in my life. As we're looking through this series called This Is Us, we've been looking at some very big questions when it comes to faith. There's a question that I think and agree with many Christian thinkers, theologians across the the spectrum of Christianity that may be the most difficult question to answer and maybe the best argument against the existence of God that we have in our world. And it's this simple question. If God is good, why do people suffer? If God is faithful, if he's kind, if he's compassionate, if he truly is a loving God and he's also all powerful, why do we still have suffering in our world? Many of you have wrestled just like I have with that question. And that question comes up when you're in the room when someone has cancer. The question comes up in the doctor's office when you find out you had a miscarriage. That question often arises when someone you know is, is diagnosed with a debilitating disease or something like ALS that just tears away the very fabric of a person over the years. Things like hurricanes and tornadoes even. Uh, my wife and I were just in Tulsa, Oklahoma, like a tornado alley, and they were just talking about uh, the wreckage and the havoc that a tornado can wreck just entire communities in one single hour, it can be a totally different place. And I look around the world and I ask, why does that stuff still happen? I believe God is good, like many of you. I believe he's kind and he's loving. And yet there's still these situations in our world I just can't explain. Now, there's a bunch of emotions that for many of us arise when we try to answer that question. And things like anger pop up in our heart. Why is God doing this? Or why is he allowing this? Or why is this still at work in my life? Question, areas of confusion. Like, I, I, I know the scriptures. I've followed Jesus for a long time, and yet there's still these obstacles in my way, and there's still suffering in my world. Things like fear. Am I next? Like, my coworker maybe just got diagnosed, but that could have been me. Or my family member just passed away, and that could have been me. Or that was my relative or my friend or my cousin in that car accident, but that could have been me. There's fear and there's worry and there's anxiety that rises up within many of us with that question of God is good. If he's loving and he's kind, he's compassionate, he's just and he's also powerful, he's eternal, he's, he's sovereign, he's omnipotent, why do these things still happen? I'm glad you asked that question actually. And I'm glad that today we get to wrestle with it. And this is not to minimize your pain or suffering or your experience with that, but simply to begin a conversation on what we think the Bible has to say about that very question. And there's maybe no better book on the planet to address that very deep and very real question than the book of Job. 
Now, if you're unfamiliar with the Bible, you'd read it like, why is there a book about jobs in there? Like, it's just kind of weird. Uh, and I agree, that's an interesting name for a guy, Job who lives in us. Like, that's about as weird as you can get biblically. Uh, but I want to take us to a story of a guy named Job, an ordinary person. He is not an angel. He is not some kind of spiritually elite person. He is an ordinary person like you and I who was kind of just going through the normal motions of life and experienced some very real suffering and had to wrestle with that very question. If God is good, why do people still suffer? Now, I want if you have a Bible or a device, I want you to turn there. We're actually going to take some snapshots throughout the book of Job and get an idea of what the Bible and the scriptures have to say about us. Remember, these are not people far off. The Bible's a mirror. It allows us to see ourselves in it. And so this series, This Is Us, we're looking at people just like Job. And so in Job 1.1, here's how the prologue or the very beginning of this book reads. In the land of Uz, there lived a man whose name was Job. This man was blameless and upright. He feared God and he shunned evil. He had seven sons, three daughters. He owned 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 donkeys, and a large number of servants. He was the greatest man among all the people of the East. Uz is set in the Near East, kind of a random region far, far away from where most of the biblical story takes place. But Job was a wealthy guy. Agriculture, land, livestock, those were signs of wealth and accumulation and, and status. So Job is a wealthy guy. He's blameless and righteous. Let's keep reading. Verse four, his sons used to hold feasts in their homes on their birthdays, and they would invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. When a period of feasting had run its course, Job would make arrangements for them to be purified. Early in the morning, he would sacrifice a burnt offering for each of them, thinking, perhaps my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. This was Job's regular custom. Every parent in the room was like, amen. Like, you never know. You never know. I just want to make sure I'm, I'm okay. And that's Job. He's like, just making sure we're covered here. I'm not sure what their Friday night was like, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to sacrifice an offering just in case. Verse 6, one day the angels came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came with them. The Lord said to Satan, where have you come from? Satan answered the Lord from roaming throughout the earth, going back and forth on it. Now, this is a weird scene. We don't see this scene in a lot of other biblical texts, but in the Near Eastern thinking and in the book of Job, this divine council is set up. The angels were coming around and, and kind of getting orders from God, if you will. This is how people thought God ruled the world. It's that these angels, these divine officials would come into the, the, the heavenly courts and God would say, okay, I need you to go here or I need you to do this and that. And Satan kind of interrupts. Satan is actually better translated directly, and Jesus mentions this in the New Testament as the accuser. It's actually better pronounced the Satan. Like, so get out of your mind that it's just a kind of horned person with a trident, like coming to attack God's will, but it's really an accuser, someone who is a part of that group of people. And he barges in and God's like, where have you been? Like, what are you doing? And he says, it's roaming throughout the earth, wreaking havoc as we'll find out. Verse eight, Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? There's no one on earth like him. He's blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. Does Job fear God for nothing? Satan replied. Have you not put a hedge around him and his household and everything he has? You've blessed the work of his hands so that his flocks and herds are spread throughout the land. But now stretch out your hand and strike everything he has and he will surely curse you to your face. The Lord said to Satan, very well then. Everything he has in your power, but on the man himself do not lay a finger. 
Then Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. That's a weird scene. That is not a life verse for many of you. Like that is just, it's a weird thing that's going on here. Like there's some very real things. Now, let me just remind you that we, if you were in theater at all in high school or are familiar, maybe even took an English class or two, you remember the phrase dramatic irony where you know something as a reader or as a, a participant that the, the characters in the story do not know. Our best shows have a lot of dramatic irony. Like, no, don't go in that room. You're going to die. Like, you know that as a viewer, but the character doesn't know it. And they go through the door and they die or something tragic happens. Like, that's what happens in Job. Job is not privy to chapter one. Job doesn't know any of this conversation takes place. He is an innocent bystander, not aware of what happens in the divine council itself. And so that's chapter one. And chapter one, and then two, and then three go on, and Job does encounter some very real suffering. Job's family passes away. Job's house literally crumbles in on itself. The parties are over. Job's livestock start to dry. There's drought, there's famine. There's all these things start to happen as Satan just wreaks havoc, that evil just kind of unleashes on his life. And he's a good guy. And yet he experiences suffering. He encounters the depth of human suffering. And so like many of us, when we have pain and suffering in our life, we go to our friends. They're kind of the first people we go to. It's like, okay, I'm encountering a difficult situation. I'm going to call up this person. I'm going to shoot a text over here. I'm going to send someone a message on Facebook and just let them know I, I need them or, or, or their family members and they're already close and around. And Job does a very similar thing. Reaches out, friends come around him, but his friends aren't necessarily the most helpful. Now, you don't have to raise your hand, but you probably have a friend who like, I'm not going to go to them when I have a real crisis. <laughs> like, Susie, I love you, but you're dumb. Like that's kind of those people. You're like, I, I, I want to hang out with you. You're a Friday night kind of person, but Monday morning, I'm not like really interested in hanging out with you. Like you probably have at least one or two of those friends. I know I do. I'm like, you're really fun, but I, when I'm really hurting, I may not go to you for advice or wisdom. But Job has a couple people around him who are kind of wise people. They're advisors and they, and they gather around and they start to spew out reasons and theories about why Job is suffering. They're not very uh, far from the, the reasons and theories we come up with when we suffer. And in the Near Eastern thought, if you were in trouble or you were suffering or had deep pain, it's because you did something wrong. You're familiar with the idea of karma, and that's essentially what Near Eastern thinking was. In the book of Job, in their context, it was, Job, you must have done something wrong or else God wouldn't have done this to you because God is just. And when he sees sin or injustice, he's going to make it right. And so clearly, Job, you did something wrong. Can you just rack your brain and figure out what it is? And Job can't think of anything. And we read from the prologue that God said himself, Job is upright, he's blameless, and he fears, he shuns evil. He, he literally drives it out of his environment. Job is a good guy, and yet he's still suffering. His friends come up with a bunch of really bad reasons why that is. And, and I want to give you a peek into one of those in Job 20. So again, if you're following along or kind of thumbing through your Bible with me, in Job 20 verse 27, here's one of the things that the friends end up saying, largely unhelpful. And this is kind of sum summarizing their thought. The heavens will expose his guilt. This friend is talking about Job. The heavens will expose Job's guilt. The earth will rise up against him. A flood will carry off his house. Rushing waters on the day of God's wrath. Such is the fate God allots the who? Wicked. The wicked. But wait, but wait a second. Was Job wicked? No. 
Job is blameless. Job is upright. He's a righteous guy. And yet these friends have a warped view of suffering. Such is the fate God allots the wicked, the heritage appointed for them by God. Friends are not helpful in this situation, right? They're giving all sorts of answers that the Bible and the rest of the scripture narrative don't necessarily affirm. And yet scholars would say Job is maybe the oldest book in the Bible. And it wrestles with that question again and again. I know that you're probably a lot like me in that. You come up for reasons why you're suffering all the time. I did this, I made a dumb decision, and often they're me-centric. They're things that I think I did and I controlled and, and I could have had some say in or I dropped the ball on or I could have reconciled a relationship and I didn't. And there's all these different things and rationalizations I come up for the, for the idea of suffering, but all of them fall short. None of them make you feel any better. They just leave you empty. And Job's friends for, for 10, 20, nearly 30 chapters give all these reasons for why he's suffering and they all fall short. They're all just opinion. They're not rooted in, in biblical truth or wisdom. And so as you skip ahead in, verse, in chapter 38, and if you've got a Bible, I want you to jump there. I love what happens. Verse, or chapter 38, after everybody around him speculated and had properly given their theories and, and their ideas for why Job is suffering, why he experienced pain and suffering, God speaks. You know in your life when God speaks, it changes everything. It's different. Your friends can give you advice and wisdom, but when you hear a word from God, things change. And in chapter 38, the Lord speaks. Here's what he chooses to say. The Lord, spoke, the Lord spoke to Job out of the storm and he said, who is this that obscures my plans with words without knowledge? Brace yourself like a man and I will question you and you shall answer me. Where were you when I laid the earth's foundations Tell me if you understand. Who marked off its dimensions? Surely you know. Who stretched a measuring line across it? On what were its footings set? Who laid its cornerstone while the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted for joy? Who shut up the sea behind doors when it burst forth from the womb? When I made the clouds its garment, wrapped it in thick darkness, when I fixed limits for it and set its doors and bars in place, when I said, this far you may come and no farther, here is where you're prayed proud waves halt. He keeps going again and again. If you don't think God likes sarcasm, <laughs> this is your chapter, right? If that's your spiritual gift, sarcasm, you're gonna like Job 38 and 39 because God just continues to push Job saying, were you there? Like when I actually laid out where the water in this planet was gonna go, were you there? Were you there when I put the stars in the sky and had them literally sing praise to me? Were you there? Were you a part of that, that equation? And of course the answer for Job is no. Job is this small little guy in this far backwoods region of the Middle East. He, he's not privy to any of that. And Job's response is something we can learn from. And I want you to read it with me, Job 42. Job 42, if you're taking notes or have your Bible there, in verse one, here's Job's response. For multiple chapters, God just says, were you there, were you there? And Job says this in verse one, then Job replied to the Lord, I know that you can do all things. And no purpose of yours can be thwarted. You asked, who is this that obscures my plans without knowledge? Surely I spoke of things I do not understand. Things too wonderful for me to know. He said, listen now and I will speak. And I will question you and you shall answer me. My, eyes, my ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. 
Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. And the book's over. <laughs> like, this is literally the ending of Job. I mean, a couple verses after that, the book is closed, story is wrapped up. And not before God blesses him and, and redeems and gives him literally double what he had before. But I think it's an important truth that when we wrestle with the question, why is there still suffering? If God is good, why is there suffering? And Job's story, I never really thought about like this for years of my life until recent reflection. I think the truth underneath this entire story is really simple, but it says, know what you do not know. You may be like, that's what I came to church for today. <laughs> like, yes, that's my best crack. That's theology's best crack at this book of the Bible. Know what you do not know. See, I remember the first time I walked into a hospital room after someone had chemotherapy. There's really no answer, no scripture verse I could have given to that person that would have helped. I had to know what I don't know. Why, why does that person have cancer? Why are they going through that? I've, I have no idea. I'm human. I have limited perception of what's going on in this eternal world, just like Job did. Again, Job didn't have chapter one. Job didn't know all this was happening in the cosmos behind his life, but he simply was a recipient, just like all of us are, of pain and suffering. Know what you don't know. Tim Mackey, who's a theologian, scholar, and writes about Job, says this, it's an inescapable reality of being human. We are finite and our brains and sensory abilities are not designed to take in the information necessary to make evaluations of God's choices. We're not God, we're human. And that may not be the most like feel good thing you've ever heard about pain and suffering. I, I get that, I own that, but it may be the most helpful long-term. It may be the kind of thing that we need to keep in tension when we experience pain and suffering is that we don't know. We don't have the answers. And part of faith is embracing some doubt and some mystery. Just being willing to wrestle with some of those deep questions and being willing to have unanswered questions and yet trust and put our faith and our hope in a God who can save us and rescue us and redeem us. I think that's the hope for many of us. I remember uh, just not too long ago, but when I was a kid, I remember dropping a glass bowl in our kitchen. And if you've ever done that before, I'm not saying I'm clumsy. It just happens to me a lot. Like I just dropped a glass bowl in the kitchen and my mom, who always said, I mean, you, your mom may have been like this, like anytime you left the door open, my mom is from Mississippi. She's like, were you raised in a barn? Like, and I was like, no, I don't think so. Not last I checked. And so I'd walk into the kitchen after that bowl would drop and I would keep my shoes on. Now my mom never said wear your shoes in the kitchen. In fact, when we'd come in from playing sports or whatever, the first thing my mom would say was what? Get your shoes off. Like don't walk through the kitchen with your muddy, dirty shoes. Like make sure those things are off. That's why it's called a mud room. Like put your muddy stuff in that room and don't come through the kitchen. If you have kids, you know exactly what I'm talking about right now. But when I dropped a glass bowl or broke something in the kitchen, my mom would be like, duh, duh, duh. don't take your shoes off. Like Make sure, because if you take your shoes off, what will happen? You will probably get stabbed and get hurt or cut your foot or, or something much worse. Now, the thing that I, was good in one sense was morally wrong in the other sense. That when I was going through the kitchen with my shoes on in that situation, 
my mom had more facts and data and information to, to make that decision. It's like, you need to keep your shoes on. It's much like if you're six years old and your house is on fire. Now, in a normal situation, your mom wouldn't advertise, yeah, you should throw the chair out the window and jump out the window, right? Your six-year-old doing that in a normal situation is a bad idea, but if your house is on fire, that's a pretty good idea. Your six-year-old looks pretty intelligent at that point. It's like, throws it out the window and destroys the window and then jumps out and you get to safety. Suffering is a little bit like that when it comes to God and our relationship to it. There are things that we do not have all the data we don't have all the facts. We don't have all the information for why this may be happening in our world, but we have to trust and put faith in the fact that God may have more information than you and I do. God may have more data on the situation than you and I do, and it's helpful to us to know what we do not know. You say, okay, that's all we get from Job, like just know what you don't know. That's a huge theme, but I think there are three important truths. I wanna just fire them off to you this morning. These are gonna take more reflection from from just these 15 minutes and then we can give, but I wanna make sure that they're there and we catch them in this story because it has a lot to do with us. These are not just for Job, these mean something for us. Truth number one is really simple. God is not the creator of suffering. Some of you need to hear that, internalize that, repeat it to yourself. God is not the creator of suffering. Some of you have just encountered incredible pain. I've sat across tables with some of you and just heard about your story, heard about the, the suffering and brokenness in your life personally. God is not the creator of that. Now that may happen under God's view. That may happen under God's providential grace. Again, we don't have all the facts for why those things may have occurred or even why he may permit some of those things to occur, even why Satan still has some role in suffering. I mean, all of that is unanswered largely by Job. But one truth we can pull out is that God is not the creator of suffering. Number two, God can redeem suffering. God can redeem suffering. Friends, family, let me just reassure you that no matter where you find yourself in the spectrum of suffering, maybe you're good, maybe you're in the best health of your life. Maybe you're emotionally in the best place you've ever been. Maybe your mental health is the most clear and, and composed it may ever have been in your entire life. That is great. And there may be others of you who would say that's not where I'm at right now. Physically, mentally, emotionally, maybe even spiritually, I feel far from God. I feel distant. I, I, my I have physical pain, I'm chronically ill, whatever it is, know that God can redeem suffering. If we've learned anything throughout this series of This Is Us, God can make broken things new again. Just again and again. And so many times he does it through situations in our life that we would not want or even expect to happen, yet God redeems it. The story of Joseph and the story of Job and the story of even Jesus is that God can redeem suffering the most terrible, horrible things in your life. May at one point, you may not see this now, but maybe at some point, God can bring good from them. Number three, God is actively overthrowing evil. Some of you need to know that. 
God is actively working on your behalf and on our world's behalf to bring it into right relationship with him again. Uh, I don't know if you liked dinosaurs when you were a kid, but I loved Joe because it talked about dinosaurs, or at least so I thought. Like, I'm interested in the Loch Ness Monster as well. So that was really interesting to me as a kid. And Job talks about, and even God brings it up, Behemoth and Leviathan, these two creatures, and they represented a Near Eastern thinking this whole idea of disorder and chaos and brokenness in the world. Think of a bull in a china shop of our world. Behemoth and Leviathan, these creatures that brought mass chaos and destruction. And God, again and again in the story of Job, reminds Job that he is literally holding these creatures back. He's keeping evil and injustice and disorder at bay. Again, Job doesn't have that perspective going into chapter 2, 3, 4. Job is accusing God, he's cursing God, he's saying it's better if I was dead than for me to be suffering still. But he doesn't have all the facts. He didn't know what he didn't know. And God is actively right now working on our behalf. And one day, we already sang about this, through Jesus on the cross and the resurrection, we'll finally conquer evil. The brokenness and pain and injustice and systemic oppression that we experience in our world will one day be gone. Just picture that for 30 seconds. Picture a world like that. That is God's design and his desire for us. Is that we live in a place free from evil and full of his goodness. And ultimately we see that in the story of Jesus. See the way that Job doesn't necessarily prophesy about Jesus coming. He just suffers. And then God redeems his suffering and the book is over. But Jesus' suffering is redeemed and the story is not over. See, you and I can look to him. In Isaiah 53, it talks about Jesus as a suffering servant. Only a suffering God can help us. Only a God who knows what it's like to walk in your shoes, to feel the pain of physical pain, to to know the stress and the emotion of anxiety and worry, and yet walk in our shoes and come out on the other side. That's Jesus. That's our story too. That's hope for us. And so I want to just kind of wrap up with this simple question. What will you do with suffering? What will you do? It's not a matter of when, if you will suffer. It's a matter of when you will suffer. And you can choose to live a life right now that prepares well for that. See, Jesus promises his disciples, these guys who followed him for years, saying, hey, just be assured, here's a promise, you will have trouble. <laughs> but take heart, I've overcome the world. I've overcome the trouble that you face. You can read that in the gospel story of John. What will you do with suffering? Here's what I know is that when people encounter suffering, there's always two types of people that emerge. You've been to a funeral like this, probably. There's one type of person, when they encounter death or or pain or physical suffering or problems, they come out the other side of that more grateful, more empathetic, more kind, more compassionate, more free, or the other way. You've known people who've suffered or experienced the death of a loved one who come out more bitter, more angry, more displeased with their life, more discontent, more angry at God than maybe they've ever been. And you decide right now what kind of person you will be. With the Holy Spirit's help, you can be this person. But many of us, our default will just be to be that person. More angry, cynical, displeased. What will you do with suffering? Because I remember the first time I had to really wrestle with that question. I had a a mentor, a small group leader, in fact, and I love those adults who pour into our students' lives every single Sunday night. This room is converted into a room where kids get invested in spiritually and get to worship and encounter the love of Jesus. Some of them never have. 
And I was that kid. I remember going through youth group and I was in sixth grade. I had an adult small group leader whose name was Eric. And Eric, shortly after that time, I mean, he was one of those adults who loved kids. He invested in us. He had us over to our house. And back before like video games were a thing, we played Risk. Like, <laughs> like we sat around his room and his living room and played Risk. And it was so fun. Like that made me sound really old, but I was a board game nerd. So I really enjoyed it. Okay. So I remember playing Risk with Eric and he had served in the Gulf War. He was a decorated war hero. I mean, he had done a lot of things for our country and I just looked up to him so much. But a couple years after Eric, uh, he was diagnosed with ALS. Just a couple years after I was in youth group with him. And uh, I remember where I was when I read the, the blog post his wife posted when Eric died at the age of 40, had so much life left, had kids, was active in his community, lived just down the road here from our church. And Lori wrote this in a blog, now a widow with two kids and a lot of uncertainty and a lot of suffering behind her. This has been a very emotional week as you can imagine, but I'm already feeling his mercies new each morning sensing the peace that passes all understanding. The day Eric went to be with the Lord, I didn't think I could possibly get through it. I was in shock and disbelief. And then I had guilt. And if only I did this or that, and I thought it would take months or years for God to get me through these things. I need to tell you that I, will know, I know it will take a long time to really stop hurting in my grief. But God has taken so much of my burdens and given me so much comfort that I couldn't have even imagined that came by the very next morning. Every day is such a gift to each of us and his mercies are new in the morning. This is the way that Eric lived each day and I will continue to trust in God for my strength. May God's peace and comfort encircle all of you who dearly loved Eric too, Lori. I remember reading that and really having to wrestle, what would I do if that was me? See, what Lori didn't say was, here's why. Never answered that question. Why did Eric suffer? Why at the age of 40 did a guy who'd accomplished so much and loved his family, loved his church, poured out in kids like me, why does that kind of die get ALS and, and, and be gone? She didn't answer why, but she trusted God. And she knew she didn't have all the answers and didn't have all the facts and didn't have all the data and yet trusted in him, regardless of circumstance, knowing that he could redeem it. Only a person like that can say a day after your husband dies that God is good and each day is a gift. You can be that kind of person. You can have a life like that. And friends, if there's anything that will really convince the world that Jesus is alive and good, it's your testimony in, in the midst of suffering. It's how you react and respond. You can choose to be bitter, you can choose to be jaded and cynical, or you can choose to be free and have hope and trust in God and know what you do not know. That's the kind of life you can live. That's what Jesus wants for us. That's what he wants for me, that's what he wants for you. And this is us, this is our story. That's what Job teaches us and this is the kind of life you and I can truly have when we trust and God, I'd love to pray for you. Uh, if you bow your heads, just to help us focus in. I, I know just from interacting with you that there may be some of you right now in this room who are really wrestling with that question, what am I gonna do with this suffering? 
Maybe it's relational breakdown. Maybe it's physical pain. Maybe it's stress or worry or anxiety or fear. Maybe there's people in your life you've lost this past year and and it's been really difficult. You're not sure, do I really believe God is good and kind and loving anymore? If that's you, I, I just wanna be able to pray specifically for you and to ask God to show up in ways that maybe you didn't expect and be able to trust him with the results. So I wonder if in this moment, if there's some of you like that, just slip your hand up real quick. I'd love to pray directly for you. Yep, yep, thank you, thank you. So Jesus, we come before you knowing that you're good, knowing that you know better than anybody else what it's like to suffer unjustly. And as we look at the cross, we see a God who would rather suffer than just give easy answers, who would rather forgive than be bitter, who would rather allow God to work through his life in ways that maybe he didn't even know fully yet, the ramifications for us. We trust in that God today. God, I pray for the people that raise their hand and acknowledge, yeah, I'm in one of those seasons right now. I'm wrestling with that question. If God is good, why am I suffering? God, I pray that beyond easy answers or cute statements or or Pinterest phrases, God, that you'd show up in their life, that you'd show them who you are and that they would be able to live well with the tension and the mystery of knowing what they don't know. God, I pray you'd speak to them. God, I pray as we approach Good Friday and Easter, maybe there's people in our life who are going through intense seasons of pain and suffering and the most powerful thing we can do for them is to pray and invite them to know that there's hope, to know that Jesus rose from the grave on their behalf so that they could have life and life to the full. I thank you for the story of Job. Thank you for Jesus. I thank you that this is now our story. You're inviting us to participate. We love you and we, we trust you. We ask for you to fill our lives with your comfort, your hope, and your peace. In Jesus' name, amen.